Okay, Boker Tov, good morning everyone. Welcome to our weekly Parsha Perspectives class for today, where we try to extract relevant and timely lessons from our Parsha to inform and inspire our contemporary times. So I want to thank our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz, who sponsored the Parsha series for the Tov, year. Good morning, everyone. In memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Li'ili Nishmas, uh, David ben Menachem Manish, whose neshama should have an aliyah. We're very grateful to the Katzes for this and their leadership in so, so many different uh, areas and things. Parsha's Baaloscha is an action-packed Parsha, and the truth is it's hard to concentrate on any one area. There are so many different stories uh, in the Parsha. Perhaps the theme that drives the whole Parsha is the story of the coming of age, the adolescence of the Jewish people, a people who've emerged as a slave nation and found freedom, redemption, uh, who found the birth of their peoplehood, and yet now are struggling as adolescents to find their own identity, their own way, their own mission, their own purpose, and to not spend their lives complaining. Uh, this is the parasha where they're introduced to incessant complaining. They become an incorrigible people. And the same Moshe, who had no problem stepping up and standing up and advocating for them after the Chet Egel, the egregious sin of the golden calf, he loses his patience, he loses his cool. And in our parsha, Moshe is ready to give up on the Jewish people. He turns to Moshe, Lam HaReosa, why? Enough, I can't take it anymore. They're so difficult, they're incorrigible, they are impossible. What went wrong? So one of the underlying themes of our parsha, and we'll go through and try to hit on some of the highlights and salient points of it, is the adolescence, the coming of age. First we had Sefer Bracious, the birth of a family. Sefer Shmos, they emerged the birth of a people. Vayikra, the priests of that people, the Kohanim with their sacred mission. And now in the book of Bamidbar, as we're traveling through the desert and hitting our stride, we have a certain level of comfort with our freedom and some divine protection as we journey and travel. And now there's the margin and space to be able to begin complaining. When people are fighting for their very survival, they find the capacity for unity, for achdus, for faith, for self-sacrifice, for selflessness. And when people uh, settle in to their own comfort and they are provided for in every which way which they were in the desert, the miraculous divine protection, the miraculous divine nourishment, the miraculous divine guidance system, every part of their existence in the desert was miraculous, driven by miracles. They've settled in and they begin to uh, grow comfortable and in fact begin to complain. And that is part of the story of our, of our Parsha as well. So let's begin at the very beginning, which is always a very good place to begin. Parsha Baloschel in the Art Scrolls Stolen Chumash on page 774. By Daber Hashem Moshe Lemor, God spoke to Moshe, Daber Abin Yisrael, V'yamarta al Elav, Speak to Aaron and tell him, Ba'aloschel es haneros amul p'nei amenora, Ya'iru shivas haneros. Say to Aaron, when you kindle, when you light the lamp, the menorah, towards the face of the menorah, shall the seven lamps be cast. That word, Ba'aloschel, when you... The halos la'alot means aliyah. You get an aliyah to the Torah, you ascend the bima to receive your aliyah. You make aliyah to Eretz Yisrael and you ascend towards Eretz Yisrael to make your physical and spiritual aliyah to uh, combine your destiny with the Jewish people in our homeland. The when you raise, when you elevate. It's a very peculiar word to describe to light. Why not say lahadlik? When you're going to light the menorah, this is Aaron's mitzvah, the mitzvah upon the kohanim. Light the menorah. So describe the lighting of the menorah using the verb to light. What do you mean, beha'aloscha, when you elevate, when you raise? Why are we using that peculiar, that peculiar word in this place? So Rashi tells us, Rashi tells us, First of all, Rashi tells us, What is the connection between the end of last week's Parsha and the beginning of this week's Parsha? At the end of last week's Parsha, we had the story of the Nesim. The princes, the heads of each tribe, all brought the exact same Korban. Repetitive, redundant, the longest Parsha in the whole Torah, over and over and over again. And rather than the Torah simply say, this was the set of Korbanos, ditto, 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 times 12, they all brought the same. The Torah actually uses its precious real estate to, to uh, elaborate and to repeat each time the exact same korban and just attribute it to a different nasi. So the Mepharshim explained the reason is to tell us that even when it seems that externally we're going through the same motions, Jews are all performing the same mitzvos. We're saying the same words in the Siddur. Maybe many even dress in a similar or same uniform. On the outside, everything looks the same. But Rahmana liba boy, Kaddish Baruch wants what's in our heart. He wants what's, what is personal, what we individualize. I always love to give the metaphor, I love to give the example that, you know, when you give your anniversary card, you give a Mother's Day, Father's Day card, you give a birthday card, you go and you buy the card. 
On the one hand, you have to make the effort to buy the card. If you were to scribble your birthday message on the back of a napkin and give it to your loved one, they'd be grateful you took the time, but the napkin probably wouldn't cut it. You have to go buy the card. If you're allowed to go out, go out, get it delivered on Amazon, or ask your grandchildren to pick it up for you. However you get the card, you gotta get the card. On the other hand, if you deliver a blank card, American Greetings or Hallmark, American Greetings, where it's arts called Stone Chemish, we gotta say American Greetings, American Greetings card, and you give her the blank card with no individualized message, the person's gonna hand it right back to you. It's the combination of the two. So our wonderful Chazal gave us the text, the liturgy, they gave us the card called the Shemona Esrei, the davening, but you've got to personalize it. You've got to put in your own words. That's the story of the Nesim. The Nesim brought the same carbon, they all bought the same card. They gave the same American greetings card to Hashem. But you know the message they wrote inside, the way they individualized and personalized, that was different for every one of them. And that is the uh, image of all of our observance in Torah and mitzvahs. We're observing the same mitzvahs, the same Dalad Mina, the same for the same sukkah. It's the same Shabbos candle, the same tefillin, the same tzitzis. We're going through the same mitzvahs, we're saying the same words in the Siddur. That is the template, that is the form of the card. But what we write inside, which words we underline, how we personalize, individualize, and make sure that it articulates and expresses our heartfelt feelings, that is up to each and every one of us. So Aaron saw all of that, the Rashi tells us. The end of last week's parsha, and he said what? It's not fair to me. It's not fair to me. Chol Shadaito. He became saddened and weak. He became frustrated and envious. And he said, it's not fair to me. Why should these Nassim have the opportunity to so selflessly give these Karbanos? Liba boy, they give all their heart and pour it into the Karbanos. And what about me? So Kaddish Baruch Hu says to him, Amala Kaddish Baruch Hu, Chayecha Shacha Gedolo Mishilahem, Yours is greater than theirs. Theirs is a one-time event. You in an ongoing way, will light the menorah. You and your progeny afterwards are given this sacred task. Now, it's a very, we've spoken about this many times, I don't want to elaborate now. I would not have expected Hashem to answer that way. When my children say to me, it's not fair to me, why did that one get this? And why did that one get that? And this one got to go with you to this place? And this one, what do I say to them? Don't worry, don't worry, you're going to get, I say, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. What do you mean it's not fair to me? That's what a child says. That's not what a mature adult says, it's not fair to me. So Hashem seems to reward Aaron's complaint, Aaron's childishness. When Aaron says, it's not fair to me, why did they get the Nesim? I want to do it. Why doesn't Hashem turn to Aaron and say, you get what you get and you don't get upset? Why does he tell him, don't worry, what you have, what I have in store for you, ooh, what you're going to get to do, that's even better. It's even more special. And I think the answer is that in the world of Gashmias, when it comes to the physical world, Ezehu Sameach, Wealth in the physical world is being happy with what you have, not needing more, is not being jealous or envious, is not comparing or competing, is simply being happy with what you have, realizing you get what you get and you don't get upset because what you got is by design and it's specifically designated from above. That's in the world of Gashmias, the physical world. But when it comes to the world of Ruchnias, the spiritual world, there a person should not feel you get what you get and you don't get upset. You should feel kinaso from tarbechachma. Competitiveness among scholars generates wisdom and knowledge and breakthrough and novel approaches and opinions. When it comes to the spiritual world, we should be hungry and have an insatiable appetite and not a ruthless competitiveness which is negative, but a competitiveness which pushes us, a competitiveness which drives us, which elevates us. And maybe that's what Hashem is rewarding within Aaron, that when Aaron says it's not fair to me spiritually in the world of Ruchnius, Hashem says, oh, beautiful, I love it. You're jealous of the way they daven, you're jealous of the way they learn, you're jealous of their chesed, you're jealous of their ruchnius, their spirituality. Good, push yourself further. I'm going to give you opportunities in that realm and in that area. It's a healthy sense of a, of a competitiveness. Good. But that wasn't the Rashi I wanted to bring to your attention. It's the next Rashi. We asked, why the word beha'aloscha? It's a funny and peculiar word. It should have said lahadlik, when you come to light the menorah. What do you mean beha'aloscha? When you elevate the menorah. You're not elevating it, you're lighting it. Why is it described as, as uh, elevating rather than as kindling or lighting, which is in fact what's taking place? Because you ever look at a flame? What happens in a flame, says Rashi? An amazing thing about a candle. Any physicists on this call? Amazing thing about a candle, says Rashi. Do you know that if you have a candle, you have a flame coming out of the candle, and you turn the candle upside down, you know what the flame does? Does it face the ground? The flame still flickers upward. No matter what direction you hold a candle, the flame flickers up. And that's why lighting a candle is called Beha'aloscha, Balashan Aliyah, up. 
because the flame of the candle always goes up. Now, you know, it tells us, Kiner Hashem Nishmas Adam, the soul of a person is likened to a candle because the human soul should also be flickering and reaching up. We're always striving. The flame of, of a person. Animals walk on all four, they face the ground. They want to get as much out of the earth and earthliness as they can. But the human being uniquely walks on two legs because we stretch, we reach for the heavens. We are aliyah, like the flame that flickers upward, so too we, we flicker upwards. The Gemara Shabbos Rashi's quoting says that Aaron and his children after him are instructed to light the menorah. And how are they meant to light the menorah? Light the menorah, kindle it in such a way that you touch your flame to that wick and then the wick rises on its own. That the flame should rise on its own. And then Rashi gives a second explanation. There was a platform there was the menorah, the great menorah, the golden menorah, and before the menorah, there was a platform. So why does it say, when you elevate the menorah? Because it means when you elevate yourself to light the menorah, when you step up on that platform in order to reach over and light the menorah. So Rashi gives us two explanations. One is that you have to kindle the wick in such a way that the flame rises on its own. And the second, because you would step up onto a platform and light the menorah from that platform. Which opinion do we follow? Which opinion do we follow? The answer is both. We follow both opinions. There was a platform taka in front of the menorah, and the halacha is the kohanim have to light the wick until it catches and rises on its own. Since when do we learn two things from one word? That one word, Baha'a generates, it teaches us two separate dinim. How do we learn two separate things from one word? I have the sefer at home, not here. I saw in a beautiful sefer on Chinuch, a nice idea, a very wonderful idea, that suggests that in fact these are not two disparate or separate or competing, conflicting interpretations, but really they are one and the same. I, how are they one and the same? They're one and the same because the message is, you know, when you touch your flame to that, to that wick and you want it to catch and rise and elevate on its own, how do we as parents, how do educators towards their students inspire that next generation? That we don't baby and we're not helicopter parents and we're not putting out every fire and we are not coming in to rescue and they're not dependent on us in perpetuity. How do we teach and inspire and enrich the next generation so that they are a wick that catches and rises on their own? How do we achieve it? By stepping up onto a pedestal, by rising up ourselves, by modeling the behavior that we're hoping to communicate and to transmit to the next generation. These two interpretations in Rashi are not in fact competing, they're not even complementary. The truth is they're in sync, they are exactly the same. The way you achieve getting the wick to catch and rise on its own is by yourself stepping up onto a platform and modeling and elevating yourself in a way that the next generation will follow. A very beautiful interpretation about how we teach and how we transfer to the next generation. We can't just teach with our words, we have to teach with our actions. When we are elevated, when we are inspired, then it overflows, it becomes contagious for those around us and for the next generation. When we simply tell people what to do and give the instruction, but we seem hypocritical or duplicitous in our own behavior, we're not stepping up onto that platform, we're not standing on that stage with that spotlight and modeling the behavior that we see or are demanding in others, then they are not only unlikely, they're, they're, not going to, they're not going to follow. The Imre Chaim, the great Vishnitzer Rebbe, the Vishnitzer Rebbe says something different. Says the Vishnitzer, on Baha'aloscha Saneros, he says, when do we do this most or most importantly? You all know by now, not only from the Parsha class and from the Living with Amuna class, but you know from the Turn Friday into Erev Shabbos class, what is my favorite day of the week? What should be every Jew's favorite day of the week? Favorite day of the week is Shabbos. So the vision of the Rebbe, and I've pointed to that many times, so many of the Hasidish Svarim, so many of the Hasidish Rebbe's, their interpretations and attitude towards Parsha, their commentary on almost every area, always comes back to Shabbos. They live B'Bechina Shabbos. They are living all week long, longing, looking forward, anticipating, trying to get to that place that's Me'in Olam Haba, that place that's closest to the world of truth, that place of Shabbos. So says the vision of the Rebbe, the Imre Chaim, Ba'alos when you light the candles, when you elevate the candles, when we are that flame flickering up, where El Mul Peneha Menorah Yiru Shiva Saneros. Shesha Saneros Maramza and Shesha Shemiachol, the six uh, candles, the six branches of the candelabra correspond with the days of the week. 
Vaner HaEmtsoi, the middle candle, Romez LeShabbos Kodesh. The middle candle of the candelabra is Shabbos. So Behalos Chesaneros, you're going to light all six candles. Where do they face? How is the candelabra? Candelabra had these seven candles, but they were not all exactly parallel. The six candles all tilted in towards the middle branch. The middle branch was Shabbos. And the six branches that surrounded it are the days of the week. You take the six um, branches and they're tilted towards the middle branch, Shabbos. It means the six days of our week should all be geared towards Shabbos. How many days has it been since Shabbos? I'm still living off of Shabbos, Parshas Naso, last Shabbos. I'm still listening to the Zmiros ringing in my ears. I'm still feeling the heartwarming games I played with my children. I'm still tasting and have heartburn. I don't have heartburn from my wife's cooking. I still have, I'm still tasting the delicious, incredible food that we ate. I'm still moved by the transformative davening. I'm still feeling well rested by the extra shluff I took. Shabbos of the previous week is still with me, and I'm starting to count down and anticipate. It's Tuesday only, tomorrow morning we're going to say Luchun Aranan, it's Wednesday already, it's Erev Shabbos already tomorrow. I'm already starting to shop for Shabbos, cook for Shabbos, play the Shabbos playlist and my Apple Music. I'm already getting ready. The six, the six branches of the candelabra, El Mul Pnei they were all tilted, tilted towards that middle branch. The middle branch is Shabbos. A Jew's entire week revolves around counting down towards, enriched and elevated by the longing and the living for the sense of for the sense of Shabbos, that's the uh, one of the ideas of the menorah. Okay, skipping right ahead, the consecration of the Levim. The Levim were separated from Klal Yisrael. We know that after the distinction of leadership was taken away from the Bechor because they participated in the Chet Ego, it was transferred and given instead. It was entrusted to the Levim, and the Levim, as part of their consecration process, have to do what? They have to shave their head. Why do they shave their head? First of all, because it's in, it's cool, it's the look. Why do they shave their head? Because it's hot outside and it's humid and it's the most comfortable way to be. They shave their head because there's a coronavirus, a pandemic, no one could go to a barber, all of a sudden everybody's giving themselves haircuts. Why are the Levium shaving their own head? I'm gonna leave that to you as a question. I saw some of Farshim discuss it. We don't have time for it today, but I think it's fascinating that part of the process of consecrating the Levium, part of the process of elevating the Levium, Part of the process of giving the Levim this charge, this mission of who they're meant to be and what they're meant to achieve and how they're meant to lead and model for the people is that they shave their head. Why are they shaving their head? They don't have to keep their head shaved. It's not something that's ongoing, but for the time being, what do you think it demonstrates? What message would they absorb? What do you think it would actualize by shaving their heads? I'll just give you one idea that occurred to me is I think hair... Hair is the part of the body that grows that we style and fashion. There are two parts of the body. We spoke about this in Tazri and Mitzorah because it's not a coincidence that the Mitzorah cuts his nails, has to cut his hair, her hair. The two parts of the body that we style and we fashion that grow, other parts of the body grow like our boich, but we don't show it off. We don't want it to grow. We want it to, to shrink. The parts of the body that grow naturally and that people tend to style and fashion, they find their individuality, they express their vanity, are their hair and their nails. And maybe there's a message, both in the case of the Mitzorah and here in the case of the Levium, that you and your consecrated holy role, you don't have to keep your head shade in perpetuity. But in this great moment, it's not about the vanity. It's not about your appearance. It's not about how you look. It's, not, it's about something so much greater. It's about a moment of elevating that is so much, that is so much higher. Apprenticeship and responsibility. And we get to Perak Tess. Perak Tess, we're introduced to the laws of Pesach Sheni. We've spoken about this on Pesach Sheni. Uh, and uh, we're not going to repeat the details now. Pesach Sheni is an incredible holiday. It's the holiday of Lama Nigara. It's the holiday of second chances. It's the holiday of Moshe didn't come to the people and say, anybody who was impure, anybody who was ineligible to observe the first Pesach, don't worry, we've got a solution. Second chance, we've got Pesach Sheni. Who instituted? Who initiated? Who was the one who approached Moshe? It was the people themselves with an attitude of Lama Nigara. And every time we talk about Pesach Sheni, we always paint the picture. Can you imagine today in 2020? Did anyone after this Pesach, where rabbis and poskim everywhere gave more hetera, more leniencies, to rely on more minimal cleaning, more minimal kashering, not minimal standards, I don't even like those words, but this unusual year, we were able to not kill ourselves Pesach in the usual fashion. Did anyone say, no, 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 it's not fair to me. It's not fair to me. I want to backache. I want to kill myself. I want to work hard. It's not fair to me. 
Can you imagine anyone exempt from Pesach who says, it's not fair to me? And yet that's exactly what these people did. They approach Moshe and they say, Lama nigara. why should we be deprived? What a message, what an attitude. Could you imagine a Yiddishkeit that we teach our children, a Yiddishkeit that we live ourselves, a Yiddishkeit with an attitude of Lama nigara. Lama nigara. You know, for a long time when we were deprived of being able to daven in a minion, in Baruch Hashem, Yeram, Boker, Aton, We've been able to resume in Yanam, not every age group, although please God, our task force is hard at work and we're hoping to be back in shul under air conditioning, even within the next few days with incredibly rigid and strict guidelines and be able to all welcome back all age groups in very, very uh, restricted ways. But when we weren't able to dab in with a minion, did you feel lama nigara or did you feel this is geschmack? I could dab in on my own guilt-free, guilt-free? I don't have to go to shul, I don't have to fight for a parking spot, I don't have to keep up the pace of the chazan, I don't have to worry about anyone talking or shushing me from my talking. Or did you feel lama nigara? Every day I'm so deprived, I can't take it. Hashem, I just want to be with you. I just want to be inside your sanctuary. I just want to be with my fellow Jews. Do we have the attitude of lama nigara? Do we feel deprived or do we feel relieved? That's the question that Pesach Sheni poses for us. When we don't have access to a mitzvah, do we feel deprived or do we feel relieved? Are we uh, indeed the disciples of the holy Jews who instituted, who initiated the, uh, the Pesach Sheni? They were impure. Why were they impure? Three different opinions in the Gemara. We follow the opinion they were carrying the bones of Yosef. Yosef is the, the father of second chances. Did Yosef not give the greatest second chances? Rav Ari Khan writes in a beautiful essay on this. Did, is Yosef not the model of giving a second chance to his brothers? So Yosef gave a second chance. These Jews turned to Hashem and said, give us a second chance. We carried his bones. That's why we were ineligible. So give us a second chance, the opportunity to observe Pesach Sheni. But moving right along, and then we have how we travel. How we travel. Once upon a time, Jews were able to travel. We were able to travel without masks. So without, without distancing, they traveled through the Mishkan. They journeyed through the Mishkan. How did they travel? Was there a travel agent? Was there uh, Expedia? How did they travel? How did they book their tickets? How did they get their assignments? So the Torah tells us, On page 70 in the article, Stone Chumash, Parashat Baloscha, Perak Tes, Pasuk Tesvav, chapter 9, verse 15. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the, the Mishkan. In the night there was a fire, the image of a fire on top of the Mishkan, during the day it was a cloud. This is the way it always was, a cloud on top. A cloud would guide them during the day, and a fire would guide them at night. And when the cloud lifted, boom, that was time. You know when you're at the gate, last call, boarding, plane is taken off, we're leaving, don't get distracted, you better get on that plane, take advantage of your mosaic status and be the first one on, take advantage of, uh, of uh, whatever uh, status you have. So here, Klaistral, the, the cloud lifted, last call, boarding, we are heading out. How did we know to travel? Pasuk Yilches, Al-Pi Hashem Yis'u B'nei Yisrael, V'Al-Pi Hashem Yachanu. Ko Mishkan, Yachanu. The Torah tells us succinctly in this Pasuk, and my dearest friends, I have to tell you, I'm gonna tell you a beautiful Sforno, I'm going to tell you an incredible revolver, and they both resonate deeply for me today because I think they capture so much of what we're going through right now in our times. This Pasuk really speaks about what it means to be a Jew, individually what it means to be a Jew, and what it means collectively to be part of the Jewish people, the Jewish story, the Jewish, the Jewish destiny. What do I mean? So listen to what the Pasuk, Api Hashem Yisu, when Hashem tells us it's time to go, that's when we go. And when Hashem says, sit still, that's when we sit still. Says the Svarno. Says the Heilige Svarno. You think it's so simple. Listen to what the Svarno says. Rav Ovadia Svarno, the great Italian medieval commentary. He says, How did you know where to go? What did Waze tell you? Before there was Waze, there was the Anan, there was the cloud. Not quite a satellite, but almost there. The cloud would tell you where to go. How did you know it was time to li- travel? Because the cloud lifted. How did you know where to go? Left, right? Machalinks? How do you know? Richt? How do you go right? You go left? How do you know which direction? So the Svarno says, because whichever way the cloud lifted, that's where you went. When you saw the direction of the cloud, that's how they knew where to travel. And the place that the cloud stopped moving, where the cloud settled, that's where you settle. Listen to the Svarno. Sipers Chusan Shayisrael Alechtam Acharav Bamidbar. 
what an incredible merit the Jewish people had attained such a high level. Could you imagine the merit and the miracle? For us, you open your phone, you have GPS, and whatever system you use, Waze or Google Maps or whatever system that you're using, it's incredible. By the way, like so many other blessings in our life, we've come to take it for granted. Who remembers when the driver would drive and the, the co-pilot had a huge map spread out on the dashboard, was trying to figure out where to go, and you made the wrong turn, and now i got to recalibrate and I can't figure it out. West Side Highway, Henry Hudson Parkway, quickly, 1010 News, get on the channel. that They're about to announce which one has the traffic. Where do we go? When do we go? You missed the turn. How do you go? The map. And then a miracle came out called MapQuest. Ooh, wow, what a miracle. Such a thing called the internet. Do you know I could put in my address and it tells me how to go and then I could print it out. It's amazing. The problem was it was only as amazing as you're sticking to it. If you made a wrong turn, you could crumple up your MacQuest and throw it out the window. You shouldn't throw it out the window, it's littering. You could throw it in the back seat because it was useless. And then we got GPS. And now our car is connected or our phone is connected to a satellite in the sky that literally, like the Ribbon Shalom, can see over buildings and tells us you can't see. But you know there's a traffic accident up there? You know that there, there's traffic, there's an accident, there's a, a, the road is closed, there's a rally up there, and redirect us and recap. It's a miracle. Who stops and pauses now? You say, oh, this is so annoying, it's so slow, or I changed the voice, I didn't like it, or we have complaints. It's a miracle. That was the miracle they had in the, in the midbar. The Sfarna says long before there was a phone or a car or GPS or MapQuest, there was the cloud, the Ribbon Shalom's cloud, and it was the Schus of Klai Yisrael. What a miracle and what a merit. Says the Svarno, here are the key words of the Svarno. The Svarno says, you know, here's how these travels worked. Here's how these travels worked. You know, sometimes the Torah is orchestrating exactly where to go. And the Svarno says, by the way of this description, the Torah is recounting the greatness of Klal Yisrael, the miracle that they merited for Hashem to be their divine GPS, that the cloud would part, it's time to head out. Which direction the cloud went in, that's the direction that they're meant to go. You know, at times, they camped in glorious places. Sometimes the cloud led them to the four seasons of the Ritz-Carlton in the Midbar, and they discovered a pool and a resort and an oasis, and they said, ooh, geschmack, this is incredible. All you could eat buffet, tea room, this is amazing. But other times the cloud lifted and then settled, and it took them to a place which was desolate, which was barren, a place that was uncomfortable, a place that was uh, not where they wanted to be, a place that was terribly uncomfortable. So did they have the opportunity to say, you know, we're going to book our stay at the Ritz a little bit longer. Hashem, you and your cloud can go. We're going to stay a couple more days. We're extending our vacation. Or, you know, this place is such a dump. We're out of here like Vladimir. I know the cloud hasn't lifted, but we'll see you there. We're out of here. Says the Sforno, there's something incredibly beautiful here. The schus of Klaistral, the greatness of Klaistral is wherever the cloud led them, they knew that's where they were meant to be, and they leaned in and embraced being there. And says Ravolba, when he expands upon this Sforno in Shiri Chumash and Pashas Baaloscha, says Ravolba, so beautiful. What was true physically in the journeys and travels of Klai Yisrael in the desert is true spiritually in our journeys and our travels. Sometimes we find ourselves in a destination we desperately don't want to be. We are in a reality, a quarantine, a distancing, an ability to see children or grandchildren, to celebrate simchas or to mourn and grieve the way we want, deprived of, of minion or deprived of companionship. Sometimes the cloud has settled and left us in a place grossly uncomfortable, inconvenient. We so badly don't want to be there. You know, in other times, the cloud lifts and heads out, and we say, no, 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 I don't want the simcha to end, and I don't want my time with my loved one to end, Hashem, don't take them from me, and I don't want this experience or feeling to end. Cloud, don't go anywhere, let me stay and savor a little bit longer. And yet, like the greatness of Klai Yisrael in the Midbar, who always followed that cloud no matter what, because they knew it wasn't measured by their comfort or convenience, it was measured by Hashem determining it was where they were meant to be, the same is true for us. There's a virtual cloud that lifts and settles and it guides and directs us in the journeys and travels in our lives. And the merit, the schus, the greatness of a Klai Yisrael is not that we follow Hashem to the place and then stay there longer or get out of there earlier, but rather we follow His direction where He leads us, that we embrace the fact that He is the one in charge and He takes us and puts us where we're meant to be, even if we don't always appreciate or want it to be exactly that way. That was their greatness and merit then, and that is our greatness and our merit today. And as difficult as sometimes it is, it's something that we have to lean into, and sometimes we have to try to struggle to achieve. Moving right along. Perak Yud. Oh, we have so much to say.
So much to say in so little time. So that is the story of how they traveled. Perak Yudah, the Chatzotros, the Chatzotros are the trumpets, different than a chauffeur is the trumpet. Chatzotros did not play. I was learning the parasha with my son. He said, what happened to the Shvarim? Because we were learning, they played a Tkiah and they played a Trua. Those were the signals of when to travel and when to stay. So there were signals, there were codes, Mara's code, but it was only a Tkiah and a Trua. We were not given in the Midbar. The Chatzotros did not play the Shvarim. That note was not part of the was not part of the uh, of the musical arrangement. So the Chatzotzos would indicate when it was time to leave and when it was time to stay and how we travel through the Midbar. So in this context, Pasuk Perik Yud, chapter 10, Pasuk Beis, we're on page 782, says the Torah, Make two trumpets, Kesef Miksha Ta'asa Osam. Make them out of silver Miksha. And they should be for you for summoning. This is how you will call the Eida. You will call the Eida. First of all, it's a very interesting word. The word Miksha. Right, where did I see this? I don't even remember where I saw this. How am I going to find this? Because I don't remember where I saw it. The word Miksha is a funny word. What is the word Miksha? I don't remember. I think it was the Kotzker. The word Miksha. The menorah is made Miksha. And the trumpets here are made Miksha. Shtechatotos Kesef, Miksha. What is the word miksha? It means hammered out. Miksha, hammered out. I think it was the, the Kutzker who said, from here we see from the word miksha to be an action. To be an action is to be stubborn. An akshan, action, is to be stubborn. A stubborn mule. These kalim of the, of the mishkan had to be miksha. They had to be hammered out, and we are hammered out. We have to be stubborn in our Yiddishkeit, stubborn in our ideals and our ideas, stubborn in our belief system, and stubborn in our lifestyle. But that's not what I want to bring your attention to. It's to the word Eida. What were the purpose of these Chatzotros? The goal, the purpose of these Chatzotros was to summon, to call, to communicate with the Eida. Says Rabbi Salavechik here on these words, on the Eida. Perak Yud, Pasuk Beis. Listen to what he says. It's a lengthy... It's a lengthy comment, but it's really worthwhile. It's the only comment we're sharing from Rabbi Salavitchik this particular week, but it's worthwhile. There are two ways in which people become bound as a group, as a community, a society, or a nation. The first is when they face a common enemy. They band together for mutual protection, knowing that only by doing so can they survive. This phenomenon extends far beyond Homo sapiens. Animals too come together in herds or flocks to defend themselves against predators. Such a group is a machana, a camp a defense formation. There's quite a different form of association. People can come together because they share a vision, vision, an aspiration, a set of ideals. This is the meaning of an Eida, a congregation. Eida is related to the word aid, a witness. An Eida is not a defensive formation, but a creative one. People join to do together what none of them could achieve alone. A society built around a shared project, a vision of the common good, is not a machana, but an Eida. Not a camp, but a congregation. These are not just two types of groups, but in the most profound sense, two different ways of existing and relating to the world. A camp is brought into being by what happens to it from the outside. A congregation comes into existence by internal decision. The former is reactive, the latter proactive. The first is a response to what has happened to the group in the past. The second represents what the group seeks to achieve in the future. Whereas camp exists even in the animal kingdom, congregations are uniquely human. They flow from the human ability to think, speak, communicate, and vision a society different from any that has existed in the past. And to collaborate to bring it about. Jews are a people in both these two quite opposite ways. Our ancestors became a machana in Egypt, forged together in the crucible of slavery and suffering. They were different. They were not Egyptians, they were Hebrews, a word which means on the other side, they were an outsider. Ever since Jews have known that we are thrown together by circumstance, we share a history all too often written in tears. This is the covenant of fate. This is not purely a purely negative phenomenon. It gives rise to a powerful sense that we are part of a single story that we have in common is stronger than the things that separate us. Our fate is not distinguished between aristocrats and common folk, between rich and poor, between a prince garbed in the royal purple and the pauper begging from door to door, between the priest and the assimilationist. Even though we speak a plethora of languages, even though we are inhabitants of different lands, we still share the same fate. If the Jew is Nahavel is beaten, then the security of the Jew in the place in the palace is endangered. It leads also to a sense of shared suffering. When we pray for the recovery of a sick person, we do so among all the sick. When we comfort a mourner, we do so we weep together, we celebrate together. This in turn leads to shared responsibility. And this leads to a collective action in the fields of welfare, charity, deeds of loving kindness, as the Rambam writes. All these are dimensions of the covenant of fate born in the experience of slavery in Egypt. But there's an additional element of Jewish identity. The covenant of destiny, the bris Yehud, entered into at Mount Sinai. This defines the people 
of Israel, not as the object of persecution, but as the subject of a unique vocation to become a Mamlechas Kohen and Goy Kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Under this covenant, the Jewish people is defined not by what others do to it, but by the task it has undertaken, the role it has chosen to play in history. The Israelites did not choose to become slaves in Egypt. That was a fate thrust upon them by someone else. They did, however, choose to become God's people when they said, Nasa Vanishma. Destiny, call, vocation, purpose, task, these create not a machana but an edah, not a camp but a congregation. The Jewish people constitute an edah when we're united in acknowledging and loving Hashem. We have a shared desire to live a sanctified life. In such times they form an edah, not because they take pride in their intellectuals, scientific geniuses, or inspired authors. Their edah is distinguished by virtue of its embrace of the prophets, Tanam, Amoraim, all the holy, holy and heroic people. There are times when Jews come together as a machana, out of fear of an Amalek or Haman, or because it's impossible for them to assimilate. Such is the case in our own time, when the sanctity is diminished. Shabbos is in exile, Jewish family life is under assault, and our past spiritual glory is in tatters. We are bereft of the ancient commitment to spirituality that united us in the past. Today we're forced to invoke intellectual and pragmatic considerations for Jewish solidarity, and so on. Where there is no shared spiritual vision, fear and trepidation are the only recourse to bring people together. But fear is a negative emotion, utterly incapable of building a lasting unity. Even though a machana might be formed on an emergency basis, its internal divisions will always resurface once the danger has passed. The only unity among Jews that can persist over time is the unity of an edah, which like a tzibor or kahal, is characterized not by shared fear or anxiety, but by a collective spiritual goal and purpose. I didn't even read to you the whole thing, but what a beautiful, beautiful entry and description by Rabbi Salavechik. This word Eida is such a different existence. The difference between fate and destiny. The difference between that which binds us out of fear or out of hope. Reactive or proactive. There are two reasons we could be a community or a congregation. We're not just a camp, we are a congregation. We have a certain sense of mission and charge and purpose all captured in this word Eida. And the reason this resonates and speaks to me, again, these are partial perspectives for today, applying it to what's going on in our lives, is because I think you can apply our reaction collectively to this virus the same way. Are we simply reacting to the virus? Is any sense of unity in America or globally today just because we're in it together? Just because only if we cooperate and collaborate can we defeat it? Or is our unity driven by something so much more significant? Is it only by fear and defensiveness? Or do we have a patriotism? And do we have a value system that binds us together? Like so many of you, I've been really heartbroken over the last three months that an opportunity, what could have been this generation, this next generation's 9-11 moment, to say, you know what, we're under attack, not from an enemy outside, from a microscopic enemy. And that should bring us together and react and think and contemplate and bind us in a patriotic way, not just how can we collaborate in a way that will ensure our survival, but how can we revisit the very ideals and values of why we're even here. And so tragically in my mind, it actually did the opposite. It divided us further and it polarized and politicized every way in which we've measured this entire experience and event and the, and the reactions to it. It's terribly tragic. It's, it's a, the tragedy is compounded by that inability to rise together, not only reactively, but proactively to redefine ourselves. I'm not talking now about the Jewish community in particular, although unfortunately it's true for them, for us as well, but I'm talking about the American people. I'm talking about the global population. I'm talking about however you want to broadly define it. There are two ways to define a group of people, and sadly we defined ourselves only, I think, by that lower way. It's not too late, and maybe we can still come back. Perak Yud still in this section, the trumpets and the, and the encampments and how we traveled. Perak Yud Now we're up to Moshe inviting his father-in-law. They've, they've now received the instructions of the GPS and how they travel and when they know it's time to stop and to rest. And Moshe turns to his father-in-law. Moshe turned to Yisrael. Here identified as Chovav Ben Ruel. He had many names. And he says, We're traveling. We're heading out. New GPS coordinates. The cloud is lifted. It's time to go. Come with us. Do a favor for me. Hashem has spoken good of Israel. Come on, you got to come with us. Don't leave. Whatever you do, don't leave. Don't leave. Come with us. So some jokingly say, this is an unusual departure where a son-in-law is begging his father-in-law to stay. But I can proudly tell you, my in-laws went back to New York last week. Unfortunately, my mother-in-law is sitting shiva. They went back because uh, my wife's grandmother passed away. 
And, uh, but before they left, we begged, don't go, come back, we want you to stay, don't leave. Moshe is telling his father-in-law, don't leave, you have to stay. Yisra says, I'm going, I'm going. And Moshe doubles down, no, don't go, you'll be our eyes, you have to stay. And the Torah never tells us, did Yisra stay or go? We've investigated this in the past. It's a big machlokas among the Mephorsh, among the Rishonim. Did Yisra stay or did Yisra go? We don't know. The Torah never tells us, which tells me that it's not so important. It's not so important whether he stayed or he went. What is important is that Moshe asked him, why did Moshe want Yisra to stay? What did Moshe provide, what did Yisra provide rather, that Moshe himself couldn't? What did Yisra's presence, what did Yisra's perspective what did Yisro's leadership provide that Moshe, nor anyone else with them, could, so much so that Moshe was begging his father-in-law to stay? I leave that for you as a question. But on these words, nosim anachnu, nosim anachnu l'makom Hashem, my good friend Rabbi Ari Murzov, Shlita, directed me to this beautiful Imre Chaim. The Vishnitzer says on these words, nosim anachnu l'makom, this is the bumper statement. This is, put this on your, put this on your mirror. This is what it means, the motto of the Jewish people. Our whole life should be defined, informed, inspired by, we're going. And where are we going? My whole life is trying to go. I'm going to Hashem. Makom is one of the names of Hashem. We say, We say, That word, is one of the names of Hashem. And therefore, this Pasuk, homiletically is capturing what is the mission statement, what is the goal of a Jew and a Jewish life and lifestyle. What is our mission? Nosim anachnu el hamakom. We're going. Where am I going? Only to a place that is reaching, that's striving, that's a flickering flame, ascending and reaching high. Nosim anachnu el hamakom, says the Vishnitzer, Amar Moshe Rabbeinu Yisro. I'm not going to say the Yiddish, Mir Ferenzum. I don't know what the Yiddish is. Zoe kotachlis chayenu alei adamos. This is the tachlis, the goal, the mission, the purpose. This is why we're here. Nosim anachnu el hamakom. The whole reason we're here is to go back to, to find, to feel connected with Hashem. This is what it's all about. And he begs, he begs Yisrael, you got to stay. What does he say? Lecha itanav eitavnu lach Hashem diber. Do a favor for us. Do a, do a, do, do me a toiva. Ki Hashem diber, because Hashem spoke. Says the Vishnitzer, Imre Chaim, Omar Moshe Yisro, Come with us and do us a favor. What's the favor you could do? You know the favor a Jew can do for another Jew? Talk about Hashem. Share Dvar Torah. Lift me up. Offer inspiration. Increase my amuna. A Jew turns to another Jew and says, Come with me and do me a favor. And what's the favor? Let's talk about Hashem. The biggest favor you can do for me is don't tell me about the corona data and don't tell me about the latest headlines and don't tell me about the stock market, although Baruch Hashem, it's mostly recovered. And don't tell me about the sports scores, that there are no sports scores to even report. And don't tell me the latest gossip and juicy info on the neighborhood. And don't tell me about the Rabbi's drusha, what you rate it, but rather, Ki Hashem Diber. The biggest favor, the biggest favor a Jew could do for a, fav- for a fellow Jew, Ki Hashem Diber. Let's talk about Hashem. Let's talk about Hashem. Tell me a shtickle Torah. Tell me a beautiful insight. Elevate, raise me. Hashem diber. Tell me a beautiful dvar Torah. Azai zakti imre chaim. A beautiful insight of the of the vision, sir. Turning the page, we have the story of the first journey. Three days, they went to go check the cloud. Vayibin tzaron. The upside down nuns. Ooh, the upside down nuns. The upside down nuns. So we have time for the upside down nuns. The upside down nuns bracket off these two psukim. We say one, we take the Torah out. We say the other one, we put the Torah back. And this, the Gemara says, is a sefer bifne atzmo. We call it a chumash, and we act as if the chumash is made up of five books. But the truth is, the chumash is made up not of five books, but of seven books. We have Bamidbar is really three books. Before the first nun, the two psukim. After the second nun, there's three books within Bamidbar. So four plus three is seven. There are seven books of the Torah, not Five. This bracketed is its own book. What's going on with these nuns that bracketed off these two psukim? The Gemara Shabbos on Daf Kuf Tazayin explains that the more appropriate place for these two psukim was the beginning of Bamidbar when we were talking about the encampments, the insignias and the logos and where everybody went. That's what they should have been. These two psukim really belong there. So why are they here? Because they're an interruption between the stories, uh, negative stories of the Jewish people. We are about to share themes with the Jewish people, a bunch of complainers, incorrigible people. It would reflect poorly to have a pattern or string of them. To break it up, we insert it here. That explains the usual, unusual placement. 
But why the unusual nun hafuchim, upside down nunim? We have a backwards nun. Now the truth is an inverted nun looks like a bracket. So you can simply say that they didn't have a printing press, and so the upside down nun looked like a bracket to bracket off this section. However, the Kabbalistic work, the Medrash HaNe'alam, explains differently. Listen to the Medrash HaNe'alam. Kavoda shel HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Mamash. Vehemi Karo shel Olam. The very glory of Hashem, the foundation of the world. Uve'elu nunin, Asar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Lifrok luhu Yisrael Aide Mashiach. Hashem is going to redeem the Jewish people and bring Mashiach by virtue of these two nunim. A couple brackets? Through two brackets? The font, the bracket, the, the punctuation? Hashem is going to bring Mashiach through punctuation? Huh? What does it mean? So the Medrash says, because of this, that Yaakov blessed his children. For one of Yaakov's chief brachas was, V'yidgularov b'kerev ha'aretz. They'll be plentiful in the land. Alright, this is a very cryptic comment in the Medrash HaNe'elam. What does that mean? In the merit of the brackets, of the punctuation, Mashiach will come. Why? Fulfilling Yaakov's bracha, V'yidgularov, you'll multiply like the fish. What in the world is this talking to? Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, Zichron Lavracha, who we're still mourning and grieving his loss, Shiva still being observed, explained the enigmatic Medrash the following, I think, very beautiful way. He was a master, master darshan, a model to so many of us who can't even measure, come close to measuring up. V'yidgularov, he says, the blessing of Yaakov to his children was to increase, to promulgate profusely like dugim, like fish. Another word in Hebrew and Aramaic for fish, the Aramaic word for fish is, drum roll please, Nun. Nun. The Targum on the Bracha, V'yid Gularov, the Targum says, Uchenune Yama Yiskun. They should be as plentiful, Chenune Yamen, like the Nuns of the sea. Elsewhere in our Pasha, the people complain. They say, We remember the fish. I'm not sure we'll have time to get to it at the end of our Pasha. We remember the Daga, the fish. And there the Targum Unklos again says, The Daga, Nunaya. The Aramaic word for fish is Nun. So Dr. Lamb says the following. Do you know that once salmon mature and they're ready to lay eggs of their own and produce offspring, they have an urge to return to the river in which they were born. They want to go home. They simply want to go home. So incredibly, using their keen sense of smell and chemical trail, salmon have the ability to migrate back from the sea or ocean to their freshwater place of birth in order to be able to spawn. And this urge is so strong that salmon can do something that you'd never guess they can do. It propels them to be able to literally swim upstream. They go against the current in order to get back to where they came from. If you don't believe me, I watched a video online, you can Google this or go on YouTube, and you could watch a video of salmon swimming upstream, and it's really an incredible sight to see. They are so driven by the desire to go home, to go back to where they came from, that they're able to literally swim upstream. Why did Yaakov wish for his children to be like fish, like Nunin? And why will being like Nunin bring Moshiach? So listen to what Rabbi Lamb suggests, quote, in order to bring about the redemption to set the world aright and justify its continued existence, to bring the spirit of divinity into the world, what is necessary is the readiness to do what fish do, a willingness to swim upstream, to go against the tide, to dare the raging currents of the foaming sea, the ability to you to your vision even when the masses declare you're blind or unfit, even when the powers of the world or community disparage you and isolate you. Without the readiness to swim upstream when you are convinced it is the only right way to go, you'll never get to the other side. That readiness is what we call courage, he writes. That's what it means. So therefore, these two nunin, these nunin hafuchim, were chosen specifically. We have to be willing to go and to swim upstream. Separately, he doesn't quote, Dr. Lamb doesn't reference the Piyazetz Nerebbe, but the great Piyazetz Nerebbe, of Kalanimus Kaman Shapiro, writes in his Tzav Vizir of his spiritual diary, listen to this quote. He says, You cannot remain static in this torrent river just by standing firm in your place. You must actively swim against the flow. You may not be successful in swimming upstream, but at least you will not be swept down by the flow. So it is with spiritual life and the purity of spirit that you have attained. You cannot retain them against the flow unless you continue to struggle for spiritual growth. You must swim upstream without respite, upward, onward against the flow. There may be a limit to how far you can go, but at least you will not be drawn down. W.C. Fields once said, quote, Remember, a dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to swim upstream. So whether you're dead or alive spiritually is determined by your willingness to swim upstream, to be like a nun, a fish, to go against the stream. These brackets, these backwards nun and these fish, it's in their merit the Mashiach will come. It means our willingness and our commitment to be willing to swim upstream. Ha'asaf suf, after the story comes, 
That word we became a bunch of complainers. This is the section we wanted to bracket off in order to break up the pattern that is describing where a bunch of incorrigible complainer, immature adolescent complainers. We were like a bunch of complainers. That word is the hit pa'el. The problem is not complaining. That's not a problem. There are a lot of legitimate things to complain about. There are legitimate things to complain about. However, do you complain and criticize constructively or destructively? And much more significantly, when you come with a problem, do you offer a solution or you only like to harp on pointing out the problem? You see, what went wrong here is The problem here is misononim. I think it's the Kutzker who says, the problem here is they became, it's not that they were good, well-balanced, generally positive, appreciative people who had a legitimate complaint. They transformed themselves into a group of complainers. We all know people like that. Are you generally appreciative? Do you generally see the good and the positive? Are you generally constructive? Are you generally part of the solution? And once in a while, there's a legitimate thing to complain about? Or are you a incessant, perpetual, endless complainer? There's a difference between being a good and happy person with a legitimate complaint. Misonanim is hitpael. It's reflexive. They turn themselves into complainers. Nobody wants to be around a complainer. Nobody wants to be around a person whose default status is to offer the complaint to see what's wrong, to criticize. So it's a world of difference between being a person with a complaint or to be a complainer. That's where they went wrong and that's why they were held accountable. That's where they lost Moshe. Moshe couldn't take it. It's one thing when you're well-balanced, appreciative, good, generous, and you have a legitimate complaint. It's another when you've just turned yourself into a complainer. I, I understand Moshe. I can relate to Moshe. Nobody's interested in somebody who is just a complainer. And that's what we have to ask ourselves. When we're coming to offer that complaint, are we pointing out only the problem or are we also offering the solution? Are we pointing out a complaint but we also are appreciative or are we just a complainer? Hashem heard them and he got very angry. Moshe Davin's here for them. Who are these Asafsuf Asher Bikirbo? There was a rabble, the rabble, these Asafsuf, Asher Bikirbo, Hisavu Tava. They cultivated a craving. They sat and they cried. I want some flesh. It sounds like me on Shavuos. I want some meat. I want some flesh. Enough with the milchiks. Enough with the parv. Enough with the mon. Where's the meat? Show me some meat. Where's the meat? I want a barbecue. I want some flesh. Where's the meat? So who are the rabble rousers? Who are the instigators who started this rebellion, this riot against Moshe and against Hashem? They were the Asaf Suf. And who are the Asaf Suf? So Rashi helps us identify them. Says Rashi, Elu Erevrav, Shenesvu Aleim Betsesim Mitzrayim. These were the Erevrav. Who are the Erevrav? Rashi says these Asaf Suf, these rabble rousers, are the Erevrav. Erevrav means, literally translates to a mixed multitude. Who are the mixed multitude? The mixed multitude. So we know that the mixed multitude are um, already in Mitzrayim. The Erevrav were the Egyptians who were circumcised by Yosef, who said they were attracted and drawn to Yosef's lifestyle and way of life, his ideology, and they said, we want to be connected. We want to walk away from idolatry and paganism, and we want to connect to you. So Yosef already circumcised them in Egypt, and they stayed with Yosef and his offspring. And in Mitzrayim, when 210 years we were in servitude, they lived isolated in their own cities for hundreds of years until it came time for Yetzirah Mitzrayim. And now when God took us out, they attached themselves to the Jewish people and they followed the Jewish people into the barren wilderness. So what happened? What went wrong? How did they go from being this noble group of, of potential almost converts to being these rabble-rousers who instigate this rebelliousness within the Jewish people? So Revolba, again in Shi'urei Chumash, on Parshas Baaloscha, Revolba points out something very, very important to see. Namely, sometimes a person starts out well. You have very noble intention, very noble goals, and you set out and start out on a path towards a wonderful, a wonderful destiny. And then you get distracted, and it gets compromised along the way, and you lose your focus. The journey on which the Erev Rav embarked was true greatness, but their resolve broke down, and they began to focus instead of on 
ideas and ideology, they began to focus on their appetite, on their, on their uh, desires. And when they did, when they followed the desire and their appetite, that's when the Pasuk says, the Asaf Suf. You know, it's not enough to climb the mountain, but you have to stay on top of it. So this Erev Rav attached themselves. They almost made it there, but then they hit a ceiling. And what was the ceiling that they hit? It was the ceiling of appetite and desire, and it caused them to give up. It's not enough to start, you gotta finish. You gotta make it all the way through. And Akedas Yitzchak, Hashem says to Avram, please withstand the test. And Rashi explains what he's pleading with him is, don't just do the first nine tests and fail the 10th, and the people will say it was nothing. When you start something, you gotta see it all the way through. You have to finish it and you have to complete it. Hamascha b'mitzvah, says the Yerushalmi in Rosh Hashanah, Hamascha b'mitzvah omrim lo gemor. Whoever starts a mitzvah, you tell them, finish it, get it right. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the Musar giant, said, you know, a person's not always obligated to be a gadol. You can't always be a super genius. You can't always be great. But while not everybody's destined to be a gadol to be great, we can be what's called a shalem. We can be whole. We can be complete. To be a complete person is to finish what you start, is to continue on that path, is to make a resolution and to arrive at the destination. You set out to learn that safer. You set out to lose that weight. You set out to start that new pattern. You set out to do that chesed. You set out to volunteer. Whatever you set out to do, be whole, be complete, be a sholem, even if you can't always be a gadol. Even if you can't always be a gadol. Revolber quotes his Rebbe, Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz, who compares it to a pot with a, with a hole. He says, such a utensil is not a pot with a hole. It's not a pot at all. So if Avram had failed that 10th test, he wouldn't have been someone who passed most of his tests. He'd be a person who failed his tests. So that's what it means that we have to be whole to finish it through and to see it all the way through. Rav Palm had a very similar idea. Rav Palm said a very similar idea on Parshas Truma Tetzave Vayakal Pekude. We've shared this many times. Why do we have Vayakal Pekude repeating everything that was in Truma Tetzave? Says Rav Palm in his uh, Sefer on Chumash, because often people set out, we start, but we fail to complete. We hit a wall, we hit a ceiling, and we give up. Shuma Tetzave are what we're meant to do. Vayaka Pakude, where we're complete, we did it, we finished. And the fact that we finished what we started is in itself worthy of even repeating. You see this, I want to suggest, also in the beginning of our parsha. Peraches, Pasa Gimel. When Hashem is telling Aaron to light the menorah, it says, Vayaskein Aaron amol panei menorah, that Aaron did what he was instructed. Says Rashi, Lahagid shvachu shal Aaron shaloshina. This speaks to the praise of Aaron, that he didn't change. Vayas kein Aaron. Aaron did what he was told to do. Why do I need to be told that? Did I suspect otherwise? That Aaron wasn't going to do what he was told to do? What I suspect otherwise? So Rashi tells us, Lahagid shvacho shal Aaron, this is praise of Aaron, shaloshina, that he didn't change. What didn't he change? He didn't deviate from the instructions? There were divine instructions. Would I think for one moment that Aaron would deviate, corrupt the instructions? So, a few answers are offered. Rav Meir Meipremeshlan says that even though Aaron was a Kohen Gadol, he was on the highest level, this teaches the praise of Aaron that he didn't change. It means Aaron didn't change. Aaron had this incredibly noble opportunity. Aaron had this high level. Aaron had the point of distinction that he got to light the menorah. You might have thought Aaron's head would swell. You might have think Aaron would get arrogant or egotistical. You might have thought Aaron would think he's all that. This is the praise of Aaron that he didn't change. Means not that he didn't deviate the instructions. That he didn't change. He himself didn't change. He remained the same humble, modest person. The Kotzker, Menachem Mendel of Kotzker, has a separate interpretation. And he says, what it means is, Shiloshina. You know, on the outside, Aaron looked like he was going through the motions of doing the same thing. He didn't change his outside and his insides. You know, the Kutzker was against people who daven and they shuckle like crazy and they flail their arms and their religious righteousness everybody has to see is on display for the world. No. Outside, calm, cool, collect, dignified. What's going on inside, your kavana, your intentionality, your mindfulness, your concentration should be a deeply personal internal experience, not something on the outside. That's how the Kutzker understands. And the Svasemis gives a third explanation. The Svasemis says... It means that Aaron never changed. You know the first time you put tefillin on in your life, the excitement you have, 
and then you get used to putting on tefillin, so it grows old. The first time you lit candles, it's exciting, and then you go on and you light candles, so it grows old. The first time you do something, it's so exciting, and the longer you do it, the more stale it grows. The praise of Aaron that he didn't change means it never grew stale. It had the same enthusiasm, the same excitement, the same energy. It remained just as fresh, just as new. That is the greatest praise for Aaron, that it never got old. It stayed just as real and just as fresh. Perhaps that's what it means to see it all the way through. Maybe that's part of the idea of the Erev Rav, it got old. The Asaf Suf, the rabble-rousers. When they started out, it was exciting. When they started out, they had big plans and big goals, and it grew old. They hit a ceiling, they hit a wall, they gave up, they walked away. And we learn from their failure the definition of success, how we have to sometimes double down and gain that alacrity and that enthusiasm and that momentum and fight through to run through that wall, around it, over it, or under it, whatever it takes to get to that other side, because we have to be a shalem, you have to be whole, to be complete, to finish what we start, even if we can't always be a, be a gadol. I can't believe the hour is up. I'm only halfway through what I wanted to share with you. But Baruch Hashem, we have next year. I'll just point a few things out to provoke your curiosity. You can look on your own. The Jewish people say, take us back to Egypt. We remember the great fish we got there. It was free. We had free fish in Egypt. Free fish in Egypt. Free? Chinam? What was free in Egypt? Uh, didn't they work slave labor? Was anything free? Why are they describing it as free when they literally labored? They were slaved in order to earn it. Question number one, look at the Rashi and the Ramban there. Question number two, when Hashem reacts to Miriam speaking gossip about her brother Moshe, the Pasuk describes that Hashem reacts pit-om, suddenly. Reacts suddenly, pit-om. Why the word suddenly? Pit-om seems extra- entirely extraneous. What do you have the word pit-om here, suddenly? Why did we need that there at all? Those are the two questions I'll leave you with. We'll start with those next year, Parshas Ba'aloscha. Wishing everyone a happy, healthy, and holy day. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel, even if you're not. Join us tomorrow for 10 Minutes of Meaning. Masilas Yisharim at 8.15. Living with Amuna at 8.45 here on the same Zoom channel or on YouTube slash Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Wishing everyone a wonderful day.